Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 13 edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rendered their decision in the workers' compensation NFL case of Bruce Matthews versus the Tennessee Titans. The sports law industry has anxiously been awaiting this decision. Bruce Matthews played professional football for 19 years. When he retired in 2002, he was employed by the Tennessee Titans. In 2008, he filed a continuous trauma claim in California, alleging that he suffered disability from injuries incurred during his career. Matthews asked the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in Pasadena to vacate an arbitration award in favor of the team that prohibits him from pursuing workers' compensation benefits under California law. He contended that the award violates California public policy, barring contractual waiver of workers' compensation benefits and federal labor policy providing that an employment agreement may not preempt state minimum labor standards. Matthews also argued that the award is in manifest disregard of the full faith and credit clause of the United States Constitution. The decision held that Matthews has not alleged sufficient contacts with California to show that his workers' compensation claim comes within the scope of California's workers' compensation regime. He was therefore not met his burden of establishing that the arbitration award prohibiting him from pursuing California benefits violates an explicit, well-defined, and dominant public policy of the state of California. Because Matthews has not shown that the award deprives him of something to which he is entitled under state law, he likewise has not shown that it violates federal labor policy. Nor has Matthews established that, he, that the arbitrator manifestly disregarded the full faith and credit clause. The appeals court affirmed the district court's order confirming the arbitration award in favor of the NFL. Last May, a WCAB panel decision reached a similar result when it ruled against retired defensive end Von Booker, who filed workers' compensation claims against the Cincinnati Bengals, Kansas City Chiefs, and Green Bay Packers in California, based on having played one game in California in 2001. The WCAB upheld the provisions of his player agreement, requiring him to file his claim elsewhere. Similar arbitration awards have occurred nationwide involving other players and teams, and most recently to 16 former players for the Kansas City Chiefs. The Bruce Matthews case is the first to reach the level of an appeals court, and now the employer favorable ruling should apply to hundreds of current NFL cases in the California workers' compensation system. The Court of Appeal clarified the continuing jurisdiction of the WCAB over new body parts after a petition to reopen has been filed. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Stephen Hart versus WCAB and Chief Auto Parts AutoZone. Stephen Hart sustained the original shoulder injury in 1999. His claim was initially resolved and an award was entered. However, he later filed a timely petition to reopen in 2004. Applicant broadly alleged in his petition that his condition had worsened in terms of both functionality and pain level. By the time of a 2009 trial, applicant had undergone three operations on his right shoulder and had favored his left side, 
resulting in a further consequential or overcompensation injury to the left shoulder. Authorization for surgery on his left shoulder, however, had been denied. Thus, in the 2009 decision, the work comp judge concluded that the surgery had been erroneously denied. He ordered that applicant was entitled to all further medical treatment reasonably required to cure or relieve from the effects of injury, including but not limited to surgery on his left shoulder. Applicant's entitlement to temporary disability was not at issue at the time of the 2009 decision since the parties stipulated to ongoing temporary total disability. Applicant then returned to hearing in 2011, now claiming benefits to his cervical area. Applicant's QME had prepared reports as early as 2008 that support a finding of a cervical problem connected with the earlier shoulder injury. The work comp judge denied applicant's request for further temporary disability benefits for his neck, concluding that applicant has never alleged any injury to his neck in the case. The work comp judge explained that the 2009 decision was final and applicant could not presently add new body parts <coughs> of, of the body as it is more than five years since his original injury. The WCAB denied reconsideration. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished opinion of Stephen Hart versus WCAB and Chief Auto Parts Auto Zone. The WCAB concluded that there was nothing in the 2009 decision itself that precluded applicant from pursuing the current claim for continuing temporary disability benefits based on his cervical problems. The issue in 2009 was applicant's entitlement to medical care, including surgery for his left shoulder. The Court of Appeals concluded that consequently it was unnecessary for applicant to raise his cervical problems at the, that time or the time of the 2009 decision. A choice of law provision in an employment contract was upheld by the Court of Appeal in the employer's civil case. Here's what happened in the case of Maxim Crane Works versus Tilbury Constructors. Stephen Gorski was injured in 2009 while working for Tilbury Constructors at a construction site in Stockton. Maxim Crane Works had provided Tilbury Constructors a crane and operator pursuant to a contract signed that day. The contract was a Maxim Crane Works form contract providing that Pennsylvania law shall govern the contract. Stephen Gorski, the injured worker, sued Maxim Crane Works, alleging the crane was negligently operated. Maxim Crane Works cross-complained against the employer Tilbury Constructors, claiming that Tilbury Constructors had been negligent. Stephen Gorski received a $900,000 settlement from Maxim Crane. This left the cross-complaint to be tried to the court. Maxim Crane Works initially contended that Pennsylvania law applied. Tilbury's counsel then unearthed a Pennsylvania statute that said that an injured worker's employer has no liability to a third-party tortfeasor unless such liability is provided by a written contract entered into prior to the date of the worker's injury. Tilbury argued that because it signed Maxim's contract the day Gorski was injured, not the prior day, the indemnity contract was unenforceable. 
Maxim then reversed course and argued the choice of law provision was unenforceable in the facts of this case. After a court trial, the trial court found the indemnity agreement was inapplicable to Steve Gorski's claim under Pennsylvania law. The trial court later awarded Tilbury its attorney fees in full without apportioning them between defending against the indemnity contract and defending against Gorski's underlying claim. On appeal, Maxim Crane Works contended that the trial court should not have applied Pennsylvania law to this dispute and also challenges the award of attorney fees. The decision, however, was affirmed in the published opinion of Maxim Crane Works versus Tilbury Constructors. The court noted that the basic policy in the field of contracts is the protection of the justified expectations of the parties. Parties will generally enter into a contract with the expectation that the provisions of the contract will be binding on them. These expectations should not be disappointed by application of the local law rule of a state which would strike down the contract or a provision thereof unless the value of protecting the expectations of the parties is substantially outweighed in the particular case by the interest of the state with the invalidating rule in having this rule applied. Indemnity agreements are common in construction work and subject to public policy and established rules of contract interpretation, the parties have great freedom to allocate such responsibilities as they see fit. And now our fraud report. Treatment for injuries under California workers' compensation law switched to evidence-based medicine as a result of amendments to Labor Code Section 4600. Evidence-based medicine aims to apply the best available evidence gained from the scientific method to clinical decision-making. It seeks to assess the strength of the scientific evidence of risks and benefits of treatment, including lack of treatment and diagnostic tests. This helps clinicians understand whether or not a treatment will do more good than harm. Utilization review vendors support their authorization decisions based upon these principles of evidence-based medicine. It would therefore seem a simple task to rely on published studies from reputable organizations to determine what should or should not qualify for evidence-based medicine and the treatment guidelines. But recent litigation disclosed that scientific medical evidence may not be what it seems. The head of the UCLA hospital, Dr. David Feenberg, and 21 other academics allegedly perpetrated a healthcare fraud that has resulted in the largest fine ever paid by a pharmaceutical company in U.S. history. Last July, GlaxoSmithKline pleaded guilty to criminal charges and agreed to pay $3 billion in fines for promoting its best-selling antidepressants for unapproved uses. The heart of the case was an article in a medical journal purporting to document the safety and efficacy of Paxil in treating depression in children. The article listed more than 20 researchers as authors, including UCLA's Dr. Feenberg. But the Department of Justice found that Glaxo had paid for the drafting of the fraudulent article to which the researchers had attached their names. The study was published in 2001 in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. The lead author was Martin B. Keller, at the time a professor of psychiatry at Brown University. The article had been exposed as fraudulent in a 2007 BBC documentary and in the 2008 best-selling book, 
by Allison Bass. Glaxo's guilty plea, according to news stories, included an admission that the article constituted scientific fraud. Paxil went on sale in the U.S. in 1993, and prescriptions for children soared after the study appeared, even though research showed Paxil was not more effective than a placebo. By 2004, British regulators warned against prescribing Paxil to children after a study reported that children taking Paxil were nearly three times more likely to consider or attempt suicide. The US FDA issued a similar warning. None of the academics have been disciplined by their universities for their roles in perpetrating research fraud. Moreover, several continue to receive federal grants from the National Institute of Health. Federal authorities say Eurasian organized crime is behind Southern California medical fraud. A man who allegedly ran an insurance scam out of a receipted California office is wanted by the federal government for bilking Medicare of more than $2 million in fraudulent laboratory tests in one year. Gevork Adenanian, who is also known as Simon Shuhapuni, and who, is listed, who has listed residents in Glendale and Burbank is wanted on charges of grand theft, identity theft, insurance fraud, false wiring, and health benefits fraud. Adinian listed himself as the owner of American Premier Laboratory in Presida. He also listed himself as the CEO of, <coughs> of LabX, another company at the same location. He allegedly used the identities of physicians to bill Medicare for laboratory work that was never provided or prescribed. Doctors whose names were on prescriptions told investigators they never used American Premier Laboratory. Billing information was purchased from individuals who specialized in organized schemes to bill Medicare. This clinical laboratory itself operated as a dry lab. They billed for services they did not perform they had no patients, no customers, and no actual blood to even run through the lab instruments. This operation appears to be connected to Eurasian organized crime groups. Adenian's whereabouts are presently unknown. He is among more than 170 fugitives wanted on charges related to health care fraud and abuse. Over $200,000 in fines have been imposed upon employers in the Los Angeles Garment District. The California Division of Labor Standards Enforcement and the U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division conducted an unannounced joint agency enforcement action involving garment manufacturing businesses in Los Angeles. The inspections resulted in citations totaling over $200,000 being issued for failure to carry workers' compensation and failure to obtain a garment license. Audits will now determine what wages are owed for minimum wage and overtime violations. The inspections were conducted at 10 garment shops in the heart of the Los Angeles Garment District that were identified by the Department of Labor as targets. 50 investigators divided into 10 teams conducted simultaneous inspections. These joint investigations were conducted almost exactly 17 years to the day after garment workers were found working behind barbed wire and underarm guard in an El Monte sweatshop investigation. The 10 garment companies visited employed a total of 199 workers. 
And in financial news, the WCIRB Actuarial Committee met to continue its review of March 31, 2012 loss and adjustment expense experience reports and recommended a pure premium rate increase. The Actuarial Committee said the recent growth in claims and indemnity claims frequency was attributable to growth in cumulative injury claims increases in the proportion of all claims now involving indemnity benefits, growth in the number of smaller non-cumulative injury or specific injury claims, and increases in the number of late reported claims altogether. A summary of the Actuarial Committee's analysis and recommendations will be presented to the WCIRB Governing Committee. And in regulatory news, the next QME competency examination has now been set for October 27th. The Labor Code provides that all QMEs are required to pass an examination written and administered by the Industrial Medical Council. The Industrial Medical Council developed and administered the QME competency examination from 1999 through 2003. The Administrative Director of the Division of Workers' Compensation assumed the responsibilities of the Industrial Medical Council in 2004 when it was disbanded. Tests are scheduled twice a year, in April and October. The Division of Workers' Compensation is now accepting applications for the Qualified Medical Evaluator Examination, which will be held Saturday, October 27th. Currently, there are two test sites, one in Northern and one in Southern California. Physicians who wish to take the exam must submit a completed application and registration for QME competency examination. The application must be postmarked by September 13, 2012 in order to qualify for this exam. All required documentation must be reviewed and approved by the DWC before physicians can be registered for the test. The primary purpose of this examination is to demonstrate the competence of a physician in evaluating medical issues in the workers' comp system and to evaluate competency with respect to current California workers' compensation system terminology, laws, rules, regulations, and medical legal procedures. And in legislative news, hopes for a last-minute agreement to overhaul the state's $11 billion workers' compensation system are growing as the end of the 2012 legislative session approaches. A small group of labor unions and large employers has been meeting quietly since April to craft legislation that would cut administrative, legal, and medical costs enough to fund a significant boost in benefits paid to workers. Angie Wei, a key negotiator with the California Labor Federation of the AFL-CIO, says she is very hopeful that she will be able to deliver to the legislature a significant reform bill. Senate Labor Committee Chairman Ted Liu, whose panel handles workers' compensation bills, is also optimistic. The goal of the talks is to find a way to increase permanent disability benefits without raising insurance premiums. Quick action is considered essential because the annual legislative session adjourns August 31st. The Division of Workers' Compensation is seeking nominations for its Medical Evidence Evaluation Advisory Committee. This committee will use the hierarchy of evidence set forth in the Division's Medical Treatment Guideline regulations to systematically review evidence and make recommendations to the DWC Administrative Director on revising, updating, or supplementing the treatment guidelines. 
DWC Executive Medical Director Dr. Rupali Das said that the committee's work in previous years was critical in establishing evidence-based guidelines for treatment for work-related injuries. The DWC invites nominations now with plans to establish a committee of the most highly qualified eligible practitioners who will continue to advance the evidence-based guideline process. The existing medical treatment utilization schedule, commonly referred to as the Medical Treatment Guidelines Regulations, was adopted in 2007 and amended in 2009. Evidence-based medicine applies the best available scientific knowledge to guide clinical decision-making, reduce unnecessary treatment, and get ill and injured individuals back to health. The current guidelines need to be updated to reflect state-of-the-art scientific evidence. This committee's first priority will be to establish the framework for updating the existing guidelines. Members of the Medical Evidence Evaluation Advisory Committee will serve a term of two years. Nominees should be sent with a cover letter describing their medical specialty, qualifications, and interest to serve on the committee, and full curriculum vitae no later than August 31st. And with that, that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skirin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.